It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. If you own a classic airhead, you've probably talked to Rick Jones on the phone when ordering parts or someone has told you to buy his book, Classic Airhead Charging. Nearly every electrical system question posted in an Airheads forum gets a response by someone saying at some point, buy Rick's book, and rightly so. Rick owns and operates Motorrad Electric and has been the go-to for all things charging, ignition, and starter-related for classic Airheads for thousands of riders. Our conversation this week covers his history in the motorcycle industry, development of his product line, his love affair with Airhead BMWs, and... He even tells us what oil he uses. You'll want to hear this for sure. Here he is, Rick Jones of Motorrad Electric on the Airheads 247 podcast. We're really pleased to be joined by Rick Jones from Motorrad Electric down in Southside, Alabama. Rick, howdy, how you doing? Very well, thank you. So, uh, as I mentioned uh, before we got started, I'm genuinely excited to speak with you today. Uh, I've been a customer of yours for a number of years. I'm on the uh, Airhead subforums on Adventure Rider all the time. And, you know, I doubt you're on there a lot because, uh, you know, you're busy doing everything else. But let me just say, uh, you are constantly referenced, appraised, and thanked uh, when anything comes up about uh, airheads, uh, electrical systems on, on that forum and other forums for that matter. But, you know, I'm on ADV more often than not. And let, I want to start by asking you this. And one thing I always see mentioned in the forums is when there's an electrical question, somebody might be new or to the bikes or, you know, just having their first problem. Generally speaking, what everybody says is, do you have the classic boxer charging book if you don't get it and then come back and ask us a question. So let's start with that. Uh, that book has been around for how long? I know it's uh, sort of in the third version now. So tell me how long that book's been around and what was the impetus for you getting that uh, off the ground? Well, it, it's been around essentially since, uh, I believe, 1995. Uh, my good friend, Dean Klein, helped me with the, uh, we created it on a laptop Apple computer and a teeny crude little digital camera. But he helped me put the thing together and I just saw a need for a, a guide, a service guide that would alleviate the mysteries of charging systems and without having it be scary, without having it rely on, well, if you don't know the, if you don't know the the 
the uh, theory of induction, then how can you possibly know how this will work? <laughs> uh, keep it simple. Don't make it scary. Don't use a lot of scary words. Uh, just tell folks how to know if you're having a problem, where to find the problem part, and how to change it. And that basic approach seems to have satisfied everyone except um, engineers and other people. I mean, I could have easily written it for their consumption, but that doesn't help the guy that's sitting in a parking lot trying to figure out why his airhead went dead. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and I, I the term I'm going to use here, uh, I don't mean it to be pejorative, but a lot of guys like me who I would say are, you know, competent parts replacers, not necessarily great diagnostic mechanics, uh, but have a familiarity with the bikes and, and all that kind of stuff. The book is, as you say, written for folks with the basic knowledge of it. Um, you know, you go through what you need uh, with testing procedures, a multimeter and those sort of things. The flow charts uh, about how, you know, you're looking at problems and where do you go from there. Uh, right. it, it, it's all really well done. Uh, and so you're in your third uh, printing of this. Uh, what right. kind? What kind more, of more or less loosely that more that had to do more with the materials change than anything. Just the uh, more uh, glossy paper that doesn't stain as easily uh, was about the biggest change that made it a version three. The inter information hasn't changed there. The airheads remain <laughs> they do as they ever were. So that part <laughs> of it, at least, don't have to worry about changing the information. Now, were you uh, prior? To publishing this, uh, were you sort of keeping some some field notes and and jotting things down in preparing to do this book, or did you you know have to have to sort of sit down and uh, sort of recalculate? Okay, let me think about this. Let me think about that. Or did you already? I'm obviously you had the knowledge base there, but um, well, it was it was mainly the result of everyday work. You know, that's the working on airheads and whenever possible, potentially, it seemed like I was working on more electrical systems than anything else. You know, of course, I had to get my ducks in a row. I had to make sure that the values were correct and this and that. But uh, pretty much I had it down in my head <laughs> all the way. So it was just a matter of... Uh, of assembling it in some in something approaching a rational order and uh, getting it out there. Yeah, well, I can say I've had mine uh, for 10 years. I first bought it when I had a rotor failure on a R100 GSPD. And like many guys, I called you and, you know, of course, you set me up with what I needed. But uh, I think you probably also recommended the book uh, and it was a great purchase. I've got a in my copy, I've got a lot of notes and, and things that I've taken in, in the back there just with my experience. So, yeah, classic boxer charging. If you don't have a copy of it in your garage, get one. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, let's go back uh, and talk about how you got started in Airheads. You know, I took a quick uh, perusal of sort of the about section on your website, and you mentioned there that you really got into the bikes in the mid-70s. So what was the first Airhead bike you bought? Uh, how much did you pay for it, and where is it now, if you know? Well, I didn't actually own an Airhead until about 1981 or so. At the, my exposure to Airheads came about when I moved to a uh, moderately sized college town and 
needed work. At that point, I was a mercenary mechanic. I was a trained Honda technician already, and so I popped into the Honda BMW dealership and inquired if they need work, and I started immediately. Where was that? Uh, where? Yeah. Uh, Anniston, Alabama. Okay. And I had moved away to go to school at Jacksonville State University, and uh, like I say, I was already gainfully employed part-time at the local Honda dealership uh, near where I moved from. So anyway, I couldn't keep away from motorcycles. I worked there the whole time I was in college, <laughs> graduated from college on Friday night and went to work where on Monday morning? Different bike shop. <laughs> 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 but anyway, but the the exposure to BMWs at that time, I was riding a God forbid Harley Superglide. Well, that's okay. I mean, those are fun bikes in their own right. Yeah, well, I mean, it was a pretty sweet bike. I didn't have any trouble out of it. But anyway, it was the only other twins, big pushrod, air cooled twins, that got my attention were the BMWs and. These guys were coming into the dealership, and I began to realize that people were actually riding these motorcycles places, like to other countries and stuff. <laughs> and so uh, I was smitten by them. The first, the first speeding ticket I ever got in my life was on a customer's uh, Granada Red R69US, a Navy doctor who was at sea, and they had brought the bike in for us to fiddle with. Anyway, I was joyriding on it and got a speeding ticket in Anniston, that, and that started a whole trend that unfortunately followed me for some time. But, uh, <laughs> no, very fortunately. Well, you must have been getting it uh, on the uh, R69. No, it was uh, a 45 and a 35 oh, okay. residential street. I was just enjoying the throb of the BMW and didn't notice the cruiser sitting off to my right. <laughs> And they were they were in revenue generating mode, and it just really chapped my ass. <laughs> it wasn't even my motorcycle. Oh man, yeah, I think we've all been sort of caught in that small town uh, yeah. speed trap uh, more than once. I know when I lived in Tennessee, uh, it was a regular occurrence. So, uh, all right, so you're at the Honda BMW dealership, right, uh, and I had a had a craving for BMWs flung on me, and especially. Being a gearhead, when I began to see how easy they were to work on and how few major problems we ever saw, and so I began to be intrigued because at that point I knew that I really loved riding motorcycles. Uh, when the working on them was done, I liked riding, and I, I was getting quite a quite an itch, quite a wanderlust, and I wanted a good motorcycle to accomplish that on. And the Harley just wasn't feasible as a multi-state touring bike. So anyway, that's what was pushing me toward acquiring a BMW, which I finally did four or five years later. My first one was an R60-5, a 73-and-a-half long wheelbase R60 toaster tank-5. slash And I managed to do a major part of riding and wrenching on that bike, learned a lot about airheads from ownership, and uh, it just kind of went from there. I don't know. I sold the bike to a co-worker, friend of mine, and made a believer out of him because he was a Harley rider as well. And anyway, I, I kind of <laughs> polluted the, 
the circle there with a BMW or two, and um, and I don't know whatever became of it, but it was a it was a sturdy beast and definitely propelled me to more BMWs. Yeah, you know, a lot of the guys I've been uh, I've been talking with, uh, sort of of your era, uh, the Slash Five uh, seems to be the the first inter- introductory bike uh, that's that's really common, especially you know. For you in the mid '70s, by then you know it was obviously right. a used bike and a little bit more affordable than buying something new. Oh uh, sure, yeah. Well, and in, in my particular local area, in this part of Northeast Alabama, there aren't a profusion of used BMWs for sale. Like you've got to know somebody that knows somebody that's got one apart in pieces and wants to sell it or something like that is typically how you ran across an airhead in the early days, especially in the 70s. They, you just couldn't, you know, they just didn't turn up for sale. Uh, it was very, very hard to occasionally find one that you could afford that was uh, a complete running motorcycle. So that propelled my <laughs> working on them as much as anything, being able to afford a good running airhead so at that time you mentioned you were employed as a as a honda mechanic at the at, what was the dealer honda bmw kawasaki of aniston is oh. actually the name of it uh they were a follow-on to the original bmw owner bmw shop in aniston which was worsham worsham's honda and bm subsequently bmw but this was a new building the guys had bought out and were in the in the motorcycle business all at once. What it was was a doctor's son had just gotten out of the Marines. He had been sent to the Marines for, you know, one of those typical <laughs> join the military or go to jail offers. <laughs> okay, yeah. In court. And so he was a badass anyway, and he got out of the Marines, still a badass, and needed something to do. So his dad, who was a doctor, bought him the BMW and Honda dealership. Did so, that did that tamp him down a little bit or what? Slightly. He <laughs> did come in. He was prone to hang out at one of the local watering holes, and he was very prone to chase other people's wives <laughs> and girlfriends. And he did come in one day with the whole side of his face swollen up and <laughs> was only in the store about 10 minutes, and he went home that day. But no. anyway, he was... He was a character, but such was the nature. So that wasn't a well-established old BMW shop that I started in. It was a a newfound guy that bought up the old shop. But anyway, it was a, it was a great learning experience, and I really enjoyed being trained. I was already a certified Honda mechanic, but I wanted training on the BMWs. So the guy wasn't a technician. He had migrated to sales, but he was the most qualified person there on BMWs actually showed me around and and all the do this don't do that here's the pushrod tube seal tool and and uh, so forth now did so, you did you eventually uh, go to a BMW uh, tech school not BMW motorcycle I some years later ended up going to several BMW automobile factory schools that was during my delusional days of thinking I wanted to be a car mechanic because, hey, people drive cars all year round. There won't be any seasonal stuff, right? Wrong. <laughs> but, no, I never went to the BMW factory service schools. I certainly did all the Honda schools and Harley-Davidson in factory service. 
back when the factories actually did the training with their own personnel, that was a much much more interesting time than going to one of the uh, for for pay places that proliferated there for a while. I don't know if any of those places even still exist. Yeah, uh, that trained. Be a motorcycle mechanic, you know. <laughs> right. I don't know. I don't even see the ads anymore, but they they may still be out there. But uh, but anyway, it was it was quite different when it's the factories own people training you. I mean, it, geez, at the Honda Training Center in Atlanta, we had a Telex machine. Whoa! Oh. <laughs> that, was, that was connected directly to Honda Engineering. Wow! So you know, if you were if you were a real smarty student and posed a question that nobody there knew the answer to, they'd, by God, find out. How about that? Yeah. That's pretty cool. So you know, you'd find out by the time you, by the next class, the next day, you would know. They, they, and, you know, they wanted to learn something, too. So it was, uh, it was quite handy. So, well, kudos to Honda for that. So at that time, uh, was that still when Butler and Smith was handling uh, distribution? And were you there? Uh, yeah, that was certainly before uh, BMW North America took it over. So, yeah, it was uh, still the BMW side of things definitely had a uh, slower pace feel to them. And, you know, we didn't have any telexes to BMW. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess back then, you know, you were probably just getting service bulletins from, from Butler yeah, and Smith. Yeah, exactly. And, and they didn't even see widespread distribution because the shop foreman always bitched about getting them back with fingerprints on them so he wouldn't give them out i mean how's that for logic oh my goodness that's <laughs> that's crazy so all right you alluded to something there i guess um could we call it your lost years uh so from there i guess you decided you wanted to try your hand at car mechanics well uh, that, that was post harley davidson i worked for the harley davidson factory as a test mechanic at the at the uh, test and development. Facility. Oh, okay. So that immediately preceded your work at the Honda BMW dealer. Afterwards, yeah, yes. immediately afterwards, uh, I went to work for Harley as a mechanic at the test facility in Talladega, and uh, boy, that was an adventure. Well, let's not go too deep on that, but I, I don't want to just gloss over that. So was no, it was. I mean, it was an adventure. <laughs> we started out we started out in a dirt floor airplane tea hanger. Oh, my God. They had rented about three or four of these hangers in, in at the airport, and they were operating the damn test facility out of dirt floor hangers. And then eventually they built about a million-and-a-half-dollar building off to the side, and that ran in that location. Anyway, it lasted until about 10 years ago, I think, 10, 15 years ago. But yeah, that was a whole. That was during the development, the do or die, uh, make or break for the company was the development of the Evolution engine. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. So you were probably right in there from the transition from the Ironhead shovelhead to the. Oh to the... yeah, very much so. It was. It was very definitely the fate of the company was hanging on this new engine, new drivetrain that was coming out. And that's the one that subsequently we hardly entered in the uh, Cannonball One Lap of America in 1984, which was the event put on by Brock Yates of Car and Driver fame. And it was the Sea to Shining Sea Trophy Memorial Dash hmm. uh, is how it started out. It, you know, it started out as a Darien, Connecticut to uh, 
San Diego burn, see who could get there first. First man in San Diego wins. Uh, but then they had to tone it down, and they turned it into a time-speed distance format and made it a lap of the United States. Sure, sure. So nobody was, you know, breaking the law. So Harley, at the last minute, secured an entry for a motorcycle, and that had only occurred about two times before in the one lap. They didn't know what to do with motorcycles, motorcycle people, you know. But anyway, we entered a 1984 uh, FXRT with a new Evolution engine. It was built on Tuesday, and Friday night we launched out. Wow. So I was selected as a, you know, ostensibly as representative of the, of the Talladega crew, but also because I was mechanical support, as well as rider. We all took turns uh, turning into zombies in the saddle. But um, 9,000 miles, it ran without missing a beat, without leaking a drop of oil, and we finished way down the line somewhere, but we finished. That was a good thing for the intro of the new bike, and uh, that was my big uh, moment at Harley. Definitely interesting. I, I, I did not know you had that that background in you. That's uh, that's cool. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer Two Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer Two Valve have years of experience with the two four seven airhead dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model, and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both Twin Shock and Post 81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, boxer2valve.com. That's the number two, boxer2valve.com. Uh, all right, so, all right, we've established Honda BMW, Honda Harley. After Harley, I is, after Harley, I've had the delusions of being a auto mechanic, so, Plus, I mean, I was and uh, I was already a European car mechanic because I drove one, <laughs> and it's typical with stuff. Mechanics have the curse of buying broken stuff because, you know, no matter what it is, if it's really nice, you look at it and go, "I can fix that." Uh, so anyway, working on cars was a totally different trip that I soon grew to hate. <laughs> Plus the fact that I was driving 65 miles one way commuting to Birmingham, and that just sucked loads. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, we're we're glad you did not fall in love with the uh, with the automotive. Yeah, well, part. I mean, I I grew to hate the car business so bad <laughs> that I had the fire in the belly that you know there's got to be something I can do 
as a business for myself, and so that morphed into providing remanufactured alternator rotors. I see. Okay. Was the start of this whole gig. And while I was still a car mechanic in Birmingham, I got the idea, because this was a common failure, everybody ended up needing alternator rotors at one point or another. And it was maddening. They cost like $75, you know. (laughs) But being from a uh, motivated mechanical background, you know, I knew that that electrical stuff frequently can be remade, remanufactured, starters, alternators, etc. And, you know, I thought, well, no reason these alternator rotors can't be remanufactured. Well, there is a reason. They don't have a shaft to grab onto, to put it in a lathe and spin it and do whatever it is you need to do. They fit on a tapered shaft with no front support. Right, right. So that made the logistics... That was the sticking point. There were, I found out, uh, researched, that there was a uh, FAA-certified aircraft remanufacturing. uh, Well, they were a rebuilder, but they were certified. They did FAA-certified work. And so I went and talked to them, and they said, oh, sure. And then I showed them one, and they said, oh, no, we can't hold it. They said, come back with the tool to hold it, and we can... We can help you remanufacture. We would supply you with the remanufactured rotors. So that's what I did, and that is what took off. That filled a need at the time, at least, of the market of uh, being able to supply better than original alternator rotors. Yeah, they were. They were truly good. They were really good materials. Bosch hasn't changed that part. It hasn't evolved one day in fifty years. Wow. They still use the same materials. They still use brown paper as insulators, and they still use a cellulose varnish to seal them with. <laughs> uh, so we improved on that. And yeah. So, yeah, let me backtrack. So, okay, so now we've sort of established kind of the genesis for Motorrad Electric. and oh, that, that was Motorrad Electric. That instantly became uh, Motorrad Electric and with only one product at that point. But, yeah, that's where the whole thing took off. Uh, so that eventually uh, evolved into uh, more work. I mean, I think at one time uh, you probably had, again, I was getting this from your website. I understand at one time you sort of had kind of an independent full-service shop for airheads. What I was trying to do, you know, to build the business to stay afloat in the meantime, I, I was working on a lot of airheads uh, or BMWs in general, some oil heads in case, but what I wanted to have happen was to grow the parts business such that that occupied the majority of my time, and I didn't need to work on stuff, which was pretty much the, the way things went and the way things developed until, you know, fairly, fairly recent years have, uh, with all the ups and downs of the world economy, plus with fewer and fewer people available who actually know how to work on these old pigs, I decided to revive my shop quite a bit and uh, provide those services. So now, now I'm doing both, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I noticed that uh, you've got a nice section on your webpage about that uh, sort of reintroducing yourself, uh, so to speak, uh, as a full service shop. 
I want to get back to the development uh, of the electrical parts and components. And that's one thing I wanted to ask you. You alluded to it a little bit there, how you worked with uh, manufacturers, suppliers to improve and upgrade some of the original components. So of all the things that uh, you sell and offer, how involved are you or were you in the development of all the different parts, say the diode board and uh, the ICU unit and things like that? I worked pretty close with uh, Jeff Lee of Emerald Island Company, uh, who is the actual maker of those things. Well, he doesn't make the hands-on rotors and stators, that sort of thing. But anyway, I, I was um, frequently contacted as a uh, uh, source of information during development uh, and as well as for prototyping. I, I typically got prototypes and said, yeah, this fits, no, this doesn't, you're going to have to clear it here, etc. cetera. Uh, but we worked, we worked very close in... Um, producing the alternators, uh, starters, uh, ignition systems. I mean, Mr. Lee is a <laughs> avowed gearhead, airhead mechanic himself, so he full well knows every limitation of these old bikes just as surely as any of us that actually ride them. Uh, and he set about to correct every one of the deficiencies one by one, So, and pretty much has. So uh, that was a really good thing for the for keeping the airheads, I think, viable for much, much longer than they otherwise would have been. Yeah, well, that's good to know because, you know, as, as somebody on the um, consumer end, you know, we go to your website and we see, okay, you know, here's these, these parts, um, you know, and we'll talk about some of the different systems that you offer and stuff like that. But, yeah, I was just really not sure if... Uh, you know, you were just sourcing a supplier that was meeting your specs or how involved you were with, uh, with the actual development uh, of no, those? I, I, I was actually, I had an actual interest in uh, providing development work for just about all of those systems uh, mentioned. Of course, it's been a, been a few years since we've had to work one up of anything really new. I mean, like I say, Jeff pretty much solved all the, all the problems uh, or made all the improvements that he could. So uh, now it's just a matter of keeping keeping on top of it and providing uh, providing the superior pieces. Uh, I guess the last improvement or change of any note was the advancement from 450 watt to 600 watt alternator kits um, for slash five, six, and later. And that was very well received because they uh, they perform very well it's it's almost unusual to ride an airhead and see the voltmeter so constantly pegged at 14 volts yeah well let's talk about that the omega system that you offer and initially what were you identifying as the the major weak points uh in the stock charging system and i know the the system itself changed a little bit over the years bmw like they do on all their bikes Right. Uh, upgraded, you know, from the early 70s, you know, mid 80s and stuff. So you're offering parts for the different eras. But what were you identifying as, as the major weak points to to address? Uh, typically, low output and more specifically, low output at low engine speeds. Because the alternator is set up on an airhead to drive directly off the end of the crankshaft, 
Your alternator is never turning faster than the engine. Unlike most other applications in the world, the alternator is sitting off to the side being driven by a belt on a nice reduction ratio set of pulleys, but the alternator on an airhead is entirely dependent on RPM to get any output out of it. That's why the charge light comes on at idle. It can't turn fast enough to make any current. So we addressed that with uh, the first leap of a 400-watt system. It all, it, this all came in increments, basically, with changes in rotor and stator diameters. Okay. Uh, made the, we the progression is ever larger diameters, but that's the key because a larger diameter rotor is spinning faster at the tip, at the edges, the circumference. It's a big wheel, small wheel effect. A big, a big wheel is switching the magnet poles, which are formed by the two metal halves of the rotor body, the squiggly, you know, claw-looking part. And the faster you can switch the poles. From north to south, the more current you're going to make. So if you've got a big rotating diameter at the circumference, it's going to be switching faster than a smaller diameter. So that has the same effect, essentially, of running about another, I don't know, two, 3,000 RPM at least. Um, fools the system, basically. So what was the challenge? I mean, you the space inside the, uh, you know, underneath the the timing cover there is obviously not infinite. Infinite, so yeah. Well, that that became the whole issue, you right. know, make, making everything still fit with no modifications, because that's that's been a, a major part of of uh, Emerald Island stuff is not having to modify the bike to make stuff work. But yeah, that's um, six hundred watts is it. That's as big as we can go, and. Uh, for other reasons, not just physical space limitations, but eh, that just about took up all the space that was left, but it it sure was worth it uh, because there's no no fitment issues and no interference issues or anything like that, so it uh, does the job as it should. It does, and so this might sound a bit of a gross generalization here, but, I mean, essentially the Omega system uh, and the subsequent parts uh, that you offer are essentially the same components that BMW used from the factory, just better quality and better performing. Right. The parts work the same way. They look different. They fit the same way. Uh, but, yeah, quality and performance are generally better. And then, of course, the diode board was a especially nice creation because yeah. it was... It was done to work with uh, with the 600 watt alternator. Uh, with, well, with all the uh, all the high output alternator systems had their own diode board. They will work with a stock diode board if you if you have to, but you you can't really load up the system routinely the way you can when you have a Omega diode board with one of the systems. But uh, that diode board was uh, constructed entirely with that use in mind so they have a magnificent heat sink and cooling ability i mean that thing looks like a looks like a fin to cylinder head off of a 50 cc <laughs> it does doesn't it yeah, yeah yeah you're exactly right so uh, i'm not breaking any uh industry secrets here you know there are other systems available that run on uh permanent magnets Right, uh, and those have their benefits and probably their issues, just like any anything would. But, yep. but yep. what in, in fact, okay. uh, any system has designed in limitations. Sure, 
uh, or the, if, if the limitations aren't designed in, they are limited by design, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, uh, permanent magnet systems are fine on slow-turning engines that don't have a huge demand. I still don't like them because they run wide open all the time. And uh, you've got to have a reliable method of converting that excess current. In the old crude days, it's just converted to heat with a Zener diode stuck up under the front fork of a Triumph. And you, you dissipate the heat by uh, warming the air as much as possible. The excess current just diverts to ground to heat. But the new stuff, I understand, I know, is, is much more complex wizardry than that in that they do stuff like they lop off the top, the peak of the AC current waves. The total effect isn't as uh, fierce as otherwise would be. So, But you, there, there are ways, but all I know is if you suffer a regulator failure... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the rectifier regulator is the... Yeah, you know, they, go, they go radioactive pretty quick if they have a fault. Usually just the regulator rectifier burns up and they stop working, but I've, I've seen some pretty nasty results from, uh, from that. It, it's mainly, well, really, a permanent magnet system is just not the sharpest knife in the drawer. They're typically, and in, typically found and intended on uh, stuff like, you know, garden tractors, 125cc dirt bikes, stuff that doesn't have a lot of demand, and yeah. stuff that and stuff that isn't going to be turning a bazillion RPMs, but yeah, they're they're built to a price point like anything else. And uh, but I I find the Bosch design system of an excited field rotor to be a much more elegant solution in that you only use the uh, you, you only produce as much power as you need right now. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you know, for somebody like me uh, who's uh, doing upgrades on his bike. You know, as a home mechanic, you know, I find that replacing the stock parts with new and improved parts and not, you know, having to make uh, any, you know, sort of changes or additions oh. to the bike for somebody like me and a lot of riders, that's a benefit as well. And I know a lot of people who, who have used uh, the permanent magnet system and, uh, you know, it works fine for them. I know a lot of people that use them and then they, other than... <laughs> Other than uh, being irritated by the whirring sound, the whizzing sound they make, they uh, seem to seem to work pretty well. But uh, I know also anything is capable of failures. And, you know, I've had people send me <clears throat> pictures of some that didn't fare so well, but uh, anything can have meltdowns under the right condition. That's, that's true. And in the end, it's it's always good to have options, especially in a, a niche a hobby like this. So Yeah, yeah, certainly, absolutely. I mean, the worst thing would be is if there were no alternative systems and we had to rely on BMW, BMW's ever-increasing indifference uh, <laughs> to the airhead market. Uh, <laughs> And indifference is the only thing I can label it as. I mean, oh, they've got mobile tradition parts. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, every other Thursday they're they're deleting something from uh, from the parts books. Oh, uh, uh, really? This or that. I mean, very, very often. 
<laughs> I go to the Max BMW website and look at the parts list sometimes just to see if any new items are marked NA, you know, because that's the first indication we have that this or that is no longer available. And, you know, kudos to Max, the parts fish uh, that they have. Oh, is, yeah, yeah. It's a great they, reference. They, 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 they deserve a gold medal just for providing that as a service because it is the ETK illustrations and with part numbers and everything, yeah. usually measurements, dimensions, if, That's if right. needed. Um, yeah, they do a great job with that. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, Alpha Ignition system. Uh, I've got one of those uh, on my uh, R80 Monolever GS. I installed that a few years ago. Now, you've got, uh, of course, two of those from the 70 to 78 models and then uh, the 81 on. So, again, um, you know, we all... Uh, know especially the 81 on versions we all know about the bean cans the again the uh, life of those uh, is not infinite but of course they were they were halfway house ignition yeah they were and new they were uh, they were the best BMW could afford because uh, BMW hadn't really gotten into digital engine control systems uh, that came along with Motronic systems on the automobiles about 1982. Uh, so anyway, BMW couldn't afford the technology that was so new at the time, and instead they got a reconfigured Saab distributor, <laughs> and uh, and it works pretty well. You know, the, the people bitch about them dying, but you know the fact is, it's a you didn't have to touch it for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, before the plastic finally got brittle. And a wire relief, strain relief inside breaks, and the wiring got into something. You know, uh, insulation broke down on the sensor wires themselves. You know, all kinds of stuff. Uh, but yeah, they last, and they will go for an amazing amount of time before giving trouble. But then when they do, no user serviceable parts inside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's like all electrical components. Uh, they well, work. They work until one, they don't. These. This 
by Bosch is perhaps the worst because there's so many places that it's a mechanical interference fit, you know, something something delicate, the shutter wheel is pressed on to a center shaft and, you know, stuff like that, that you've really got to be careful and very fortunate to be able to get one all the way apart and all the way back together without having any issues. Yeah, I mean, I've seen guys who rebuild those. I mean, it's not uncommon. Yeah. It's not uncommon. Not, well, it is nowadays. Yeah. I mean, I, before we developed the Alpha system, I had a guy in uh, Colorado who was a tech for some company or other. He was a traveling service rep. And so on weekends, he would build bean cans. <laughs> and he was really good. I mean, I, I, gave, I sent him a five-gallon bucket full <laughs> of parts because there are no parts. If, if, you need, if something is worn out or broken in one of those cans, uh, you need to have the ability to pull one out of a dead unit. So anyway, I sent him the whole bucket of parts, and he was really good. But still, no matter what the skill level, every now and then, one of those bastards would come back and come back and come back, you know, and poor guy would have to try to correct it. And, you know, the worst was we had to mandate, you know, it wasn't a core exchange. We fix whatever you send in. I see. And some of them were in pristine shape. It was just a failed sensor. Some of them <laughs> were not. Everything in them would rattle and be worn out. So, you know, that was rebuilding them was problematic, and I really did not like being uh, – because it was so – it, it was hard to make – it was hard to know that every rebuild was going to hold up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you don't want to send out a part you don't have a whole lot of confidence in. But at the same time, you have to do the best you can with what they send you. So, you know, explain to the layman then, this, this being myself and uh, other folks, so what is the big difference then uh, with the stock BMW ignition, uh, let's just say from the, let's talk about 81 on, versus uh, what you uh, developed with the Alpha. So what changed, what did you address there, uh, and where are the improvements? Well, the major, major improvement is getting rid of the mechanical advance weights and springs and rotating collar to affect uh, ignition advance control. Getting rid of all those springy metal wear-out parts, was a, they, they eventually get where, much like the uh, points-fired systems, they may not be maintaining spark synchronization on both cylinders exactly the same so you know you never know it except for different vibration levels and you know if it was on a dyno different performance slightly less but anyway they're uh, they're prone to inaccuracy as they age and just inaccuracy is inherent it's that it's just that simple so yeah, we got yeah. rid of the weights and springs and now the advanced curve is programmed into the control module. So it's an all-in-one module that controls spark propagation at the coils and spark advance. So pretty, pretty neat to have it all-in-one. There's nothing in the Alpha bean can except a rotating shutter wheel 
and the hall sender device itself. Yeah, and again, <clears throat> it's really a plug-and-play kind of thing. And when I got mine, um, it, it, I also got the ICU uh, along with it. So um, are yeah. those are those proprietary? Can you use one without the other, or what's the uh, deal? No, those are definitely, uh, definitely you have to use them together. Okay. Uh, because of the advanced programming. So uh, that's that's the difference. The advanced being controlled digitally means nothing's ever going to change to affect that. So it'll it'll be it'll be running at whatever the advance is dedicated to be. Uh, it'll be running at that consistently. Well, it's a great unit. Like I said, I I bought one and installed it. Uh, you know, probably in less than an hour, and uh, it, it's been working great for for me ever since. So uh, I I find I find that they really have the best benefit. The most the biggest noticeable difference is on the points fired 900 and 1000 cc iron barreled airheads and especially the old 1000 cc models somebody with an old R100S or something like that you could slap one of those things on it and it instantly becomes so smooth i mean it feels like you've just done a, a complete synchronization mixture and synchronization on the carbs uh oh all right rick you're starting to sell me on this because i bought a r90s a couple years ago and it still has the dyna 3 ignition on it yep yep well dyna, dyna 3s are kind of like the stock stuff they work pretty well for quite a long time but you know once if they ever start giving trouble they can drive you mad yeah and they're not what they used to be either everything changes but they went through some manufacturing changes as well, and uh, before I stopped selling them, it got to be pretty dicey. As, but they were having control unit failures. So anyway, that Dyna Three is a good workable system until they give trouble. Yeah, and that's you know back then that was the again that was the available uh, upgrade yeah, for, that's for what those we parts. Had. Yeah, yeah, that's and it. one thing I'll say in defense of Dynas is. Uh, the advanced curve is going to be right because it's the same one that was on the bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, I want to move on to a, to uh, a couple other uh, topics. You know, as I mentioned, uh, you know, we we spoke recently on the phone, and I was, you know, inquiring about the availability of the Omega system, and I had a you know a charging light issue uh, on my Monolever GS, and you know, I was just calling to say, hey, you know, do you have these in stock? I'm, you know. I need to test my diode board. I hadn't done it yet, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to give you a call, as a lot of folks do. And I told you, said, hey, look, you know, what's going on is I'm not having a dim light situation on the on the generator light. What I'm having is kind of a hard flicker uh, yeah. where, where it's bright. Uh, right. It's not coming. The charging light doesn't. It takes, you know, up to 1,500 higher RPMs just to go off. But even when it does, it was a hard flicker, not a dim situation. Right. And you correctly, uh, without skipping a beat, said, well, it sounds like it's the brushes. And uh, sure enough, I went and checked my book out. Your, I checked the classic charging system book after I got off the phone with you, brushed up on what you had to say about that. I pulled, pulled the brushes out, and sure enough, they were way out of spec. I had a spare set in my box, popped them on, and problem solved. So I mentioned that to say you spend a lot of time uh, on the phone dealing with customers. Uh, you know, you're not a internet order based website. And I have to give you some props for that because, you know, as you mentioned on the site, uh, you're wanting to spend, you know, a few minutes. It's with... easy to make mistakes. Yeah. People are terrified of electronics anyway. And it's just 
too easy to, in all good faith, order the wrong part. And that way, then there's going to be two unhappy people. You, because you got the wrong part and got to send it back. Me, because I got to deal with the return. (laughs) (laughs) And all the while, you're not going to get to ride. So, (laughs) yeah, that's right. Let's get it right the first time. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, at the at the top of this, you know, um, you're always seeing on, on Adventure Rider when I'm posting on there, you know, what great customer service you provide, and you know, I always see folks referencing, you know, hey, I, I just got off the phone with Rick, or I'm waiting to hear back from Rick on this. So, yeah. um, you know, kudos, kudos to you on that. Uh, yeah, well, it's a phone, phone traffic is a big part of my deal because, uh, you know, I, I very frequently have to help people through, <laughs> determine what their problem is, and then they promptly buy parts to fix it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and, and actually having knowledgeable diagnostic help on the phone before parts purchase is a rare thing today. It is. It is. So again, kudos to you for doing that. Um, I want to just briefly mention, you know, I want to kind of go over the three major systems, you know, that you specialize in. And the third, we can just touch on this as briefly uh, or as long as you want, but it is the starter. Um, You know, um, everybody, you know, everybody, uh, from you know the early uh, eight two starters uh, up into the nine tooth and the, on the later runs, eventually the Vallejos kick the bucket uh, yep. and, and the Bosch need to be rebuilt. So uh, tell me, you know, why you picked the now the Nip and Denso starter that's uh, used? Is that available for all generation airheads? Yes, eight tooth and nine tooth. So what's the big uh, benefit on that over the, over the Bosch, just rebuilding and replacing the, uh, or rebuilding the Bosch? Uh, well, being a reduction gear design, it has more torque, and it weighs half as much as a Bosch. And it has, you know, essentially Japanese build quality, so the electric motor portion is just outstanding. Just don't see any trouble out of those electric motors. And, of course, then Emerald Island adapted with a new casting to bolt to the uh, BMW engine. New That's right. casting and drive gear to make it work on an airhead. But they they really are, as far as I'm concerned, they're the, they're, they're the, the standard. They're the top shelf of um, reliable working starters. I mean, they really perform well. I... I kid and tell customers they they operate they turn the engine over so fast they sound like you've taken the plugs out it, you know what i yeah i i bought one from you uh, a while back and it's a big difference i mean the sound is different yeah, yeah they do sound different they're they they work differently but uh uh they spin with considerable authority and that usually <laughs> leads to a quicker startup so uh you know you're usually off and away in just a matter of seconds now let's not poo poo the bosch uh, no, there, there are some, not. no, I mean, there's some folks who, you know, might not have the budget, uh, for a new starter and it's a little more co- cost effective. I, that's why I rehab, I rebuild, remanufacture, whatever Bosch starters about every other day. And, um, yeah, I, I find the Bosch starter, you know, we're already riding a motorcycle. Who cares about weight unless you're crossing the desert or something? Sure. Uh, of course there are limitations to the eight tooth if you put an eight tooth starter behind a high compression 900 cc engine it's going to grunt no matter what i mean even if the starter is perfect 
it may encounter starter stall where the engine grunts up to top dead center and then goes over and begins to spin. It always works, but it just sounds <laughs> disconcerting because it always <laughs> sounds like it always sounds like the starter is not going to work. But uh, A2 starters on the slash fives and sixes were acceptable, but then the nine two starters used on the R100s and everything after that get a much better mechanical advantage just to gear ratio. So they they spin considerably better. Parts are still, for the most part, there's some eight two starter parts beginning to dry up, uh, like drive gears. But uh, basically, I can rehab a Bosch starter and make it as close to new as it ever was, and they will work very well for a very long time. Yep. Yeah, I had a nine-tooth go out on my monolever GS, and, you know, I just didn't want to trash it. So, you know, I, ha- I sent it to you for a rebuild. I put the Nip and Denso in uh, for long-term use. And like a lot of guys, uh, you know, I just like the comforting feeling of, you know, still having the original part there if I need it for whatever reason uh, as a backup or, you know, one day. Yeah. And, you know, one day, you know, maybe I'll just get tired of kicking it around the garage and I'll, you know, sell it. I mean, I have a I I run a Bosch starter on my personal slash five seven fifty. And, you know, it was what I had on hand. (laughs) But I, but I, you know, I made the Bosch starter so new I didn't worry about it, and it certainly with a 750 cc engine it spins readily. So uh, I, I have no problem with Bosches. I make an effort on those frequently. Good. All right. So I want to get you out of here on uh, a few kind of quick fire questions I've been asking uh, everybody that's uh, that we've interviewed here recently. The first one is, what is your best and or worst uh, roadside repair and or breakdown when you were riding? Uh, well, one that, the one that produced the most angst was a rear flat on the rear of my R60 U.S., on the way to the Choo Choo Rally in Chattanooga many, many years ago. And had to flat. A riding buddy was with me. I pulled over, saw the deal, broke the tool kit out, and I did not have a wrench that fit the custom-made-by-the-owner axle nut. It was a non-standard size. Oh, my God, that is infinitely frustrating. Oh, man. And so... When I when I started breathing again from that, it's like we were in front of a little little house, and I said, "Well, I got nothing to lose." I, I mean, of course, my buddy only had standard BMW sizes too, and so I went up and knocked on the door. This nice old gentleman came to the door, and I explained to him he could see the bike down in his front yard that I'd had a flat and I couldn't get the axle nut off, and would he have any sort of wrench? available that might open up to about inch and a half, two inches. Well, I don't know. Let's go out here in the smokehouse and see. (laughs) We ambled out to this shed out in the back, and he opened the door and reached in and took a rusty-ass pipe wrench, about an eight-inch pipe wrench, off of a nail. (laughs) said, "This, this might work. And man, I, I could have, I leapt with joy. I said, oh, yes, that'll work. Let me borrow it. And so I ran down and began pulling the wheel off and breaking it down. And, you know, I had full capability to air it up and everything. 
aired it up, and it was leaking. Oh, Lord. Pinch the tube. Oh, man. And it was, you know, and I was <laughs> as close to ranting and wailing as I ever get, <laughs> but ex- expressing <laughs> my displeasure. And, you know, I was just about ready to count myself, and my buddy says, I've got another tube. <laughs> so this time I slowed down and carefully installed the tube, pumped it up, got it all bolted back up, and I went up to give the old dude the wrench back. And I said, you know, this thing just saved me from a world of grief. Uh, would, would you be interested in selling me this wrench? And he took it and turned to hang it back on the nail and said, no, I reckon I better keep it. Somebody else like you might come along. <laughs> <laughs> well, kudos for him for the foresight yeah, I mean, there. I, I thanked him. I couldn't pay him anything. I tried to pay him. and you know, he, But anyway, that was, man, I mean, it, it, I've had flats on the road. And, you know, it's never a big deal, but it's a big deal when you pinch your only tube. Yeah, that is a stinker. Uh, yeah. that's, that's a great story. Okay, so here's the next one. We ha- I have to give you a prelude here and say we need to take out the charging systems and everything we've talked about out of your possible list of answers here. So uh, I'm curious as to one design change in the classic Airhead model range from 70 to 95, if you could go back and tell the BMW engineers, please don't do this. Uh, I've seen the future. Don't do this. What would it be, again, aside from, you know, your area of expertise? Uh, Without a doubt, it would be deletion of the output shaft forward bearing circlip. Yeah. Without a doubt. that That is the most glaring example of trying to save a penny and costing yourself a fortune. You know, that that whole scenario, they bought into, oh, this is a new bearing, it fits tighter on the shaft, you won't need to machine the groove or put the circlip on anymore. Well, there's only one problem, is, is that bearing is immediately adjacent to a, helic, a helical cut gear, which exerts end thrust and the end thrust in this case is directly on the center ball bearing race, and it totally wipes them out eventually. And that was, you know, that that was that was more egregious than the starter changes, you know, they made in 1988 with the Valio starters, uh, which are, were which ostensibly was done for lightweight on the new R100GS. But the fact is, it was cost reduction on the front end, meaning more profit on the back end. For the company and serviceability be damned they didn't care uh but i i think those those two licks which occurred about at the same time or very close to each other yeah were um major major bad moves as far as i'm concerned we're yeah. still dealing with a result of the uh output shaft bearings i get one of those transmissions in about once a month really still oh yeah yeah, well, usually it's because somebody buys a bike, and then they begin to notice maybe some slight noise, maybe a little vibration in the right foot peg of, say, an R100GS, and you go, oh, no, I know what's coming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you pull the drive shaft boot back and disconnect the drive shaft, and the flange, the output flange turns notchy, 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 instead of fluid, smooth. You know, you know that one's... That one's at the gates. 
so it does it does happen well if there's any silver lining in that and this may be a stretch would be that uh it has kept a lot of independent mechanics uh like anton uh large ted porter and yourself uh busy with work i suppose i i hate to see it from the customer standpoint but you know it's very much like the bmw cars were uh in the in the late 80s uh, the BMW cars were rather maintenance heavy. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it mildly. You know, it wasn't uncommon at all to have a uh, have a hundred fifty dollar oil service run into you know a few grand before it got off the lift. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that. But yeah, I mean, you know, but but in much the same way, independent car repair shops always proliferate from factory-trained ex-dealer mechanics, and so, you know, providing service at considerable savings. So, yeah, it's keeping keeping some of us old curmudgeons alive that know what's going on, and uh, for that, I am grateful. Yeah, exactly. So, in a way... Like you say, it was the most agreed, one of the more egregious things, but you almost have to say, you know, thanks for jacking that up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's not a, it's not hard to fix. No. I mean, it's a little expensive, but it's not hard. You just go in, replace the bearings, and have a circlip groove cut, and you go back to the early bearing, and everything's fine. Yeah. As it has been in Airhead land since 1974. They got along just fine. Yeah. But... But anyway, yeah, there, so there is a fix at hand without, you can put it right. That, that's the main thing. It can be made right. Okay, here's the next one. Uh, and if you have to pause and think about this uh, for a second, that's fine. We can edit out uh, the gears turning in your head while you're thinking, maybe. <laughs> the four uh, airhead models, again, 70 to uh, 95, four of those bikes you would put on the Mount Rushmore of BMW uh, Classic Airheads. Uh, well, let's see. 1970 R75. Uh, then I would go with a 1977 R seventy five slash seven. Interesting. Now that's one I haven't heard. Why? Why that one? Uh, they were particularly well done. Seventy seven. Of course, it was the last year for them, and in typical BMW fashion, the last year of anything they make is typically the best. Right. Because they figured they figured out all the problems and corrected them. Uh, but I don't know. I always found the seventy sevens to be exceptionally, even for a. a uh, 750 to be usually of exceptional build quality, and uh, they always just seem to work better, slightly better than uh, previous models, and certainly they do work better than the first iteration R80s with the flat-top carburetors Mm, and other abominations, but anyway, yeah, so there's a uh, a Slash 5 750, uh, Slash 7 750, uh, R80 GS. Yep, that's a common one. Yep. And uh, I guess after that, geez, probably R100, R100 GS. Okay. Well, I would, yeah, I don't know. It's R100 GS or R90S. R90S is nice for what they are, but I, I could go either way. I could go, that would be fluid, whether I would choose an R90S or an R100 GS. Probably R90S in the, in the final analysis, I would, uh, I would hew more toward the 90s just for it being a airhead on steroids yeah exactly and you know all it did to save uh the the motorcycle division yeah yeah 
Yeah, you know, one, uh, I, you know, the, the uh, R80GS and the R90S are pretty common, um, uh, pretty common ones folks have been putting on the list. And, you know, you mentioned the sort of last, uh, last of a particular model generally is the best. And, you know, one I would put on there that you didn't mention probably would have been, you know, one of the R100Rs. Uh, of the late 90s, because uh, as you mentioned, that was, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I didn't I didn't uh, consider R100R, but I was thinking about the older stuff. I think I would, I would include an R100R over an R100GS just because as a street bike, the mono levers and, well, even a pair of levers uh, work so much better on the street than they ever did on the damn GSs. Yeah. Uh, the driveline is more or less parallel with the ground, and that may, that means U-joints and drive shafts live a lot, lot longer. Uh, oh, that was a, that was one I left off of my list of screeds. <laughs> yeah, right, the, the paralever drive shaft. BMW drive shafts, yeah. That, that, that's a big ugly as far as I'm concerned, but yeah, anyway, yeah. R100Rs are really nice motorcycles. Yeah, I had a Mystic uh, for a number of years and, and, and really enjoyed it. And one of these days, I hope to, to get just a, a standard R100R or the, or the classic uh, version of that that came out in the uh, late 90s. Right. Yeah, I, I just really like those. And, uh, you know, the, the, the suspension on it, you know, was nice. You know, some people yeah. say it was a bit of a parts bike because they were using K-bike parts, you know, but whatever. Thank goodness the front forks were superb. Oh, yeah. Big, beefy tubes and a cast-in fork brace. I mean, they were a Shawa, of course, Japanese, yeah. and and they worked. They worked really well. So, all right, here's the last one. And uh, every time I ask this question, uh, I get a little bit of a laugh and a hoot. Uh, but still, it bears asking, uh, Rick, what oil do you run in your airheads? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here it is. Okay. Mobile One, fight me. <laughs> okay, you said, say that again, Mobile One? I say Mobile One, fight me. Yeah, right. There's nothing finer than Mobile One pure synthetic oil in an airhead, which needs the extra thermal pr protection that synthetics offer. They don't cook down. You don't have to suffer volumetric loss of like 25, 30% just from the oil getting hot. Uh, I know people say, <laughs> it'll make your BMW leak oil. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was just going to ask you. I mean, that, seem, is, that seems to be the, I don't know, is it a wives' tale or is it, you know, just anecdotal evidence? But that's what I always hear. All I can say is if you put it in an old R100-7 that already has a worn-out top end, meaning significant crankcase pressurization, past the worn rings and it's still got every gasket and seal in the motor that have been in it for 25 years hell yeah it's gonna leak oil <laughs> okay. like a sieve <laughs> but if you bothered if you have bothered to take it apart and dry it up with new seals and gaskets even even legendary or traditional design oil seals from BMW, they will hold synthetic oil, not just not with a worn-out top end. <laughs> Fair enough. You know what I love about this question is uh, I've got predictably a different answer from everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be sure. 
sure. It, it's like it's much the same. You could ask somebody, "What is your religion?" Yeah, <laughs> totally. What, what supreme being do you believe? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, look, uh, Rick, it's really been uh, fun visiting with you and picking your brain. Uh, I say picking my brain didn't take long, did it? <laughs> no, I'm sure there's a lot more we could have touched on. But uh, yeah. like I said, it's been a lot of fun visiting with you. And, uh, you know, I learned some things uh, I didn't know about you personally, uh, which was nice. And, uh, you know, I understand uh, a lot more now, you know, what you offer uh, as far as your services go and, uh, you know, your history and, and tradition with the with the brand and the marquee. So we'll get out of here by saying uh, folks want to get in touch with you. That's easy to do uh, in your Google machine or your web browser. Just type Motorrod Electric. Uh, as yep. you know, it doesn't matter if it's misspelled. It'll come up just the same. Yep. Uh, it'll, it'll come up with the next closest guess despite spelling or, or arrangement. So yep. it's... Um, It'll always cool in. And uh, you're always available uh, to chat on the phone, uh, answer emails. Uh, so, Rick, um, really, keep up the good work. I I'll say this not to uh, be patronizing, but, you know, it's because of guys like you. Um, you know, you're one of the main contributors to the hobby, uh, improving everybody's enjoyment of the motorcycles uh, over the years. And uh, we just everybody, I, I, like I said, I speak for a lot of folks. Uh, we just really appreciate your time and everything you do. Well, I'm glad to be a part of it all. And uh, we'll just keep them flying. Excellent. Well, I know I'll be in touch again uh, for some parts uh, probably sooner, sooner than I want to, but take care, and I'll catch you down the road, all right? All right. Thanks, and have a great day. Thank you, Rick. Bye-bye. Cheers. Once again, thanks to Rick Jones for joining us this week. As always, links to his website are in the About section of this podcast. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time. Mm -hmm.